My name is Serena, and I'm reading from Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30, the parable of the bags of gold. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his mother master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is God's word. Well, as I mentioned earlier, we're in a series on the parables, which are stories. And uh, this should be kind of the easiest stuff to listen to if you're normally bored or sleeping during the service. These ones, come on, these ones, this is low-hanging fruit. It's story. Story is one of those mediums that is uh, talked about a lot these days as one of the most powerful ways of communicating, but it has always been like that. Many of you grew up in traditions, ethnic traditions, in countries where storytelling was just a common part of what you did as you gathered around a table or a meal, or stories about families or legends were passed on from one to another. All of the movies that we so love to, to watch, this, the reason there's a, such a comfortable seats that you're in today is because many people come and pay money to watch uh, movies, which are stories, and even things that are true or documentaries, in a sense, stories that are told to us. Stories have the power to do something that mere lecture or words or ideas are not able to do, and that is they pull us into another world, and they begin to do things to our mind and our heart, such that we can, great stories in a sense, beyond just being merely distracted or amused for a period of time, or maybe given a few laughs, begin to change the way that we think and the way that we feel. Now, one of the things, if you're a movie watcher or a book reader, that you would have noticed over the last few years that things have begun to change in storytelling, there was a genre of story that was more um, what we would call utopian. Uh, Thomas More in the 1500s wrote a book called Utopia, and it was, they're still trying to figure out what he was exactly saying about it, but it was this idea that there is a world out there where all is as it should be. 
He wrote it in a sense as a bit of a social, political, religious commentary on the way that the society he was living in was breaking down. And he wrote this book called Utopia in a sense to say, well, what if everybody lived this way? Wouldn't it be better if this and this happened? And in fact, years after in the Enlightenment movement, in the belief in the power of uh, science and progress and human potential, people actually began to believe, look, we as human beings have within our ability to bring about the society that we want to see. We actually have a, the power to create, in a sense, utopia. We have, it, there's nothing can stop us as long as we work together, as long as we stop fighting, as long as we use our intellect and our reason, as long as we use education and political systems and power and money and um, governments to actually move towards what would be the ideal. But in fact, what slapped the Enlightenment in the face was one war after another. And what we have seen now actually in filmmaking and story writing is what is called dystopian type writing. And so things like The Hunger Games or The Day After Tomorrow, these more that are apocalyptic saying, well, what's going to happen in the life to come or maybe even The Matrix? Do you know that the world you're in is not exactly as it appears to be? That in a sense, things are different than they appear to be and things will be different than you think they'll be and they'll not actually be the way you hope they will be. There's going to be challenges, there's going to be difficulty. And we explored that when we looked at the last book of Revelation, how most of what our world believes is that life is a beautiful journey with a terrible ending. And that's what a lot of apocalyptic films now say, one day it'll be zombies or whoever, or there'll be the haves and the have-nots. That's what the whole Hunger Games world is based on, is this fact that one day some people will control everything and then others will have to fight for whatever they can get. These are dystopian type of uh, realities about the way the world will be and others saying, hey, how you see it today is not exactly how it is. Now, this is very interesting because some people will say, well, I hope it's going to be better than that, or I think it's going to be worse than that, or others will say, well, who cares? You know, why do we even think about that today is all we have? And yet I would submit to you that most of us, what we struggle with, often though we don't realize it, is wondering what the purpose is of this life that we're in. Is this all there is to life? It's why movies like The Matrix or others tap into something behind us and say, maybe there's a reality behind the reality that we're not seeing. And that's why sometimes I feel like, is this all there is to life? I get up, go to work, work as hard as I can, even if I'm blessed to like my job and make enough money. And then I come home and try to make sense of my family, whatever life stage I'm in. And, and then I get up and do it again. And then the weekend comes. And then after the weekend, there's five more days or six more days. And then, and then summer and winter and fall. Is this all there is to life, this routine? And when things are going really well, we don't ask it that often. When, when things are struggling or we're tired, we're thinking, man, when does this ever end? Or someone else will say, is this all there is to life? In other words, is there something behind this that we're missing, that there is more because there's something inside me that tells me there must be more? And where is this all going? Is this heading somewhere better? Towards something? What am I working to? What is history moving to? Or is it going to be something worse? How do I know? What is the reality behind the reality today and where is it all unfolding? You and I actually, those, the answers to those questions are the key to unleashing what is the power in our lives, which is hope. To live without hope, a sense of despair that just, well, this is how it is and this is all it is and one day it's just gonna slide off the edge of time. Leaves us despairing, not able to be motivated, not able to re live beyond ourselves, to do things we know we need to do, to take risks we know we should take. Without hope, we cannot actually live and thrive as a people. 
And what's so interesting is that Jesus, when he came to tell us the stories of God, as I said to you, the stories of the parables of Jesus, though the stories themselves were fictional ones, they were not told to us merely to amuse us, to distract us for, for a period of time from this difficult existence. Nor were they little kind of pithy bits of wisdom, like maybe Aesop's fables about you should try not to be too proud or you should try not to be, do this or try to do good to people or you never know who's going to come around and have authority over you, so you better treat everybody well, although that's all wise things. More than that, they were, as I said to you, stories told to us by someone who loves us and who wants more for us. And that's, I don't know about you, but I want more. Whatever it is, right? Whatever that is, I want more of it. And to know that the stories of Jesus are told to us by someone who loves us, who's not trying to just entertain us so they can make money off of us, who's not just trying to manipulate us and control us because they want us to behave differently, but someone who actually loves us and who wants more for us even than we want or know for ourselves. And that's why the stories of Jesus are the greatest stories ever told. They're the ones that actually have the power to change us. And what's so interesting is many of the stories of the parables of Jesus talked about this other reality, this reality that was behind the world that people were living in that was actually defining not only the present but the future as well. He called it the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God and he used those terms interchangeably. Sometimes you might read them in the Bible and think, well, what's one or the other? They're the same thing. And Jesus was often telling stories to help people understand, some of whom were very religious and devout and, and knew what they, or they thought they knew what the kingdom of God was about. Others who maybe had been religious at one point but had just sort of given up on it. And others who were coming from backgrounds where there was all kinds of other religions or other beliefs and they didn't know what he was talking about. And so he was telling stories to try to illustrate to them a reality that stood behind the world they were in and that was shaping where in fact they were going. And the parable that is read for us this morning that we're going to look at is such a story about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And so maybe regardless of your background, maybe you could imagine yourself sitting around in a crowd like Jesus. And some of us are people that are wanting to know God earnestly. And others of us maybe had that in our background and we're not interested anymore. Or maybe others of us have come from other religious backgrounds or um, have no uh, belief or religious system that we would affiliate ourselves with. But we're all sitting there listening and Jesus is saying, listen, there is a reality behind the one that you are living in now and you know this in your heart you just don't know what it is and so let me tell you what it's like and so he explains this parable and now this parable is is told about a master who has servants okay and he goes on a long journey it says he's going a long journey and so while he's gone he's going to entrust the wealth in his household to these people and so he gives three servants he probably has three but again this is a parable it's a short story it's a quick quick learn and he gives one of them a bag of gold, five bags of gold, another one, two bags of gold, another one, a bag of gold. And it doesn't say that he told them what to do with it, but that he went away. And two of them invested it, turned it into more, and one of them buried it. And then after a long time, he comes back to settle accounts. In other words, what did you guys do? You were servants, you were stewards over my household. What did you do? Well, the first two said, hey, we doubled what you gave us. And he says, great, you can have more. In fact, come, he uses the word happiness, enter into my happiness. In other words, there was okayness. So now this is continuing. Whatever you had, you actually get more and you're going to experience more joy. The third one did nothing with it. He buries it. And when the master asks for an explanation, he says, well, I know you're a guy that harvests where you haven't sown, which is kind of strange because it was his stuff that he gave to him. And so I was just afraid, so I buried it. And he gets kicked out of the house. And what he had was given to the first guy. And that's the story. 
What does it mean? Jesus is telling them, this is, ha- this is the reality that is behind the reality you're in. This is what it's like. Now, it's not the ultimate, complete description of what the kingdom of God is like, but it's one story. And if you read the rest of the Gospels, you'll see many other stories that describe this. What is this reality? In fact, if you're wondering, why should I read the Bible? Well, that's why. To understand the reality that is actually more visible, more true than the one you can see with your own eyes. So what is the story about? He gives them these, these, um, these bags of gold. First of all, it says is a man going on a journey, which implies a period of time in between now and the future. So he wasn't leaving forever. He was entrusting them with something. And so suddenly it's anchored in time for us. And Jesus is saying, look, in the kingdom of heaven, in the kingdom of God, this reality, there is a now and there is a not yet. There's a period of time. In other words, you this feeling that you have that you're kind of in between something? It's, it's because you are. Something is going on now, but it's not finished yet, and it's unfolding, and one day it will have an end. In other words, when the master returns. Am I being too loud for Isabel? Okay, sorry. Greg's her dad, so I'm not sure how that works, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, you shouldn't sit in the front section. I'm just kidding. You should. These are, these are amazing seats right here. There's a period of time for which the master is away, but it implies he's coming back. So there's a present, there's a now, and there's a not yet. Oh, suddenly we go, oh yeah, yeah, I think I knew that. I think I felt that in me. And then it says he gave them bags of gold. Now, the, the reason this is called the parable of the talents is the Greek word that's used for this bag of gold is talanton. Now, unfortunately, some of the applications to this story, if you've heard it before, is people say, oh, that's where we get the word talents. And so this is about, um, you know, how God has made each of us differently and given us each talents or abilities. Well, that's true, but that's not what this story is about. God has made each of us differently and has given us talents and abilities, but that's not what the story is about. Talanton was a, a single talent was half a year's earnings. So if you take, I didn't do a net present value calculation on, on this, but you take average income, it's about a million and a half dollars, the one talent, okay? And so the one servant got a million and a half, basically, and, and we, we, he wasn't zero, he was of some age, which means he got half a year's earnings, so obviously he, he got pretty much, ne- would never have to work again if whatever he was entrusted with. And the other two servants, the other one got two and the other one got five. Now, the issue is not the difference in amount that they got, which is often what we think about. It was all gold. They all got something enormously valuable. They all got an amount of money that radically changed their lives because it was so huge and they were entrusted with it. And in a sense, as servants, they would have been using it, living off of it. It would have changed their life. It changed all of their lives or at least had the potential to. So this isn't about who, why got one. In fact, it says according to their abilities. In other words, the master knew what each of them was able to steward. And so each of them had the ability to manage whatever was given to them. It wasn't over their heads. It was massive amounts of money, but it wasn't over their their heads. And it was all gold. What was Jesus saying in that moment? What was the gold that they were given? It wasn't their talents and abilities. It was the kingdom. In other words, they had been entrusted with something so valuable, it was the kingdom of God itself. In other words, part of what he was saying was the kingdom of God is gold. What what does it mean? What is the kingdom of God? It's a good question. If you read the scriptures, what, what you will find is, you know the Lord's Prayer that many of us learned to pray when we were little? Your kingdom come, your will be done. The kingdom of God, it's right, like whenever anyone is in charge, we don't live in uh, monarchies now, but, but in those days, and when a, a king, a king 
Whatever the king wanted is what happened in the land. The way the land worked was according to the values, the plans, the goals, and the ideas of the king. And so the kingdom of God is the reality where all of the ways of God are fully lived out. When we say, God, let your kingdom come, we're saying, God, earth would be better if everyone lived according to your way. Your way of thinking, your way of knowing, your way of relating to people. In other words, the kingdom of God, this gold that was given to these servants that in a sense is given to us, because remember I said to you as you're listening to a parable, you're always trying to figure out, okay, where is God, where am I, where is Jesus in these stories? Because they're all having to do with us and God. That the kingdom of God is to know God and to make him known. To know his love, to know his grace, to know his power, to know his wisdom in your life, and then to have that flow out of you to other people. That is the gold, Jesus said that the servants of God were given. In other words, the greatest thing in life, the purpose of life, ultimately, through your job, through your family, in your life, in the way that you look at your money, in the way that you view yourself in relationships, the purpose of life is to know the greatness, the goodness, the love, the power, the wisdom of God. And then to live that out in such a way as the people around you experience the kingdom of God. That, In other words, you got rich by knowing God. And that somehow the people that hang around you, because you're a rich person, and people who hang around rich person get rich things from them, that somehow other people would know God is gold. That God's ways, God's thinking, that's what the gold that they were given. It was an enormous entrustment of what they were meant to see was the kingdom. Now what's so interesting is these servants get it, and we can almost lump the first two servants together because they both did the same thing with it. So it's kind of like two differing responses to this gold that they were given. Two of them took it, it said, and invested it right away. And it says here, and immediately they, they went away, invested it, and they doubled it. Now, immediately would not have happened. There was no stock market quick, you know, buy something, short something, and, and make a double. There wasn't a market like that. So if they were going to double their money, it would have actually taken them a long time, which is why the, serv- the master was gone for a long time. Because the only way they would have had to do that, it wasn't like a sophisticated banking system, they would have had to buy, build, sell. They would have had to invest in something, make it better, turn it around, flip it, get more money, invest again, turn it around, flip it again, until they had doubled. So this was no short thing that would have happened. In fact, what to say is it would have taken over their lives. Essentially, the kingdom, the gold that they got, changed their lives forever. They understood, whoa, now our activity on the earth is now totally different. Master's gone for a long time. We don't know how long we have, but if we're actually going to do something with it, it's going to change our lives. They probably became business owners, owned many things, sold them, kept on having, and had to be wise in what they were doing. And so now all of their life was taken over by this vast entrustment that they had been given. And so they invested and invested again and turned it around and flipped it around and built it up, turned a profit. Maybe they lost a little, maybe they made it back. Eventually they had doubled, but it had taken the long time that the master was away. The other servant looks at it and does not clearly see gold. What he sees is, what what does he say? I was afraid, I see trouble, I think it's another theater. You guys can stay for church if you want. But. <laughs> yeah, where were we? The third servant. <clears throat> he doesn't see gold. All he sees is, this is going to wreck my life. 
and I'm not sure about this master. I don't really trust him. I'm afraid. I'm just going to bury it in the ground. And he would have buried it, we know, it looks like immediately. So what impact did it have on his life for the rest of that life for that long time? Nothing. Essentially, it was fearful, forgotten, or for gain. Those were the, the two responses. He was afraid. He just did nothing with it, didn't want the inconvenience, was worried about the master, didn't want this on his hands, buried it, and it did not change his life one bit. And for the long time, life just continued on as if he had never received gold. Imagine that. Imagine getting something that had the potential to change your whole life, and what he did was bury it so that actually nothing changed. And the master comes back at the end. And the ones have said it had taken over their lives. They had bought, sold, traded. Now they were probably different people. They were probably much wiser. They would probably become businessmen. They could probably become people who could have been masters themselves. And they had doubled it. The other one did nothing with it. Nothing changed. And suddenly a knock at the door. And the master comes back. Jesus was telling about this timeline. There's a now and there's a not yet. There's a present day and there's a day to come. And there's a long period in between. And you don't actually know how long it is. And you've been given this gold entrustment. It was each according to their abilities. And so what we can say here and conclude here is that, well, it wasn't as if the third servant needed to be overwhelmed. The master knew what he could handle, and he was given that gold. It was the kingdom that he had been entrusted with. And Jesus was saying this about life. Now, and, and if, you re, if you read earlier on in the biographies of Jesus, when he first kind of appeared you know, because when he was born, he was not anyone of noble birth, not anyone of significance. And all of a sudden, at the age of 30, he began to walk around teaching and preaching. And what did he say? He said, the kingdom of heaven is now. In other words, with the entry of Jesus into reality, now something has changed. And what it what was, he was the gold. In a sense, he was presenting the ways and the plans and the love of God. Now suddenly, the people that heard him and listened to him were understanding God at a whole new level. Before it was God way up there and they knew him as creator and they knew he had laws, but they didn't see him face to face. They didn't know what God would do if he came in contact with people who were sick, with people who were hurting, with people who were really sinful, with people who didn't qualify for religion. They wouldn't know what God would do with people who were not of social standing or who were, didn't have it all together. They didn't know what God would do with people who had died. They wouldn't, didn't know what God would do with people who um, were lording their religious power over other people. But suddenly in Jesus, they began to understand God. And Jesus kept saying, this is the kingdom. I want you to see this is the ways and the love and the power and the grace and the wisdom of God. And you're meant to take this into your life and have it take over and have all the gold kind of go out. You know, the difference was between these two sets of servants. The first ones understood just how valuable it was. And what do you do when you get something really valuable? Not only do you cherish it, but what happens, and this, we see this more in money than anything else. What do you do when you get money? You want more, right? Now, we, I know we shouldn't say that. That's like confession, sure. It's true. I remember a survey done years ago with people who made different amounts of money from $20,000 a year to $200,000 a year, and they asked them all the same question. How much more money do you need to be, okay, good? How much more? The average answer was double. It was just double. It didn't matter what they made. They all felt, I just need twice as much, right? Which is an interesting thing. We can laugh, and that's true. That's what these guys did. It was like they looked at it and said, oh my gosh, how do we get more? And that's what they did, right? They spend their whole lives trying to get more. 
The other servant didn't realize how beautiful it was. All he saw was, this is going to cost me. This is going to be difficult. I'm not sure I trust the guy who gave it to me. I'll bury it in the ground. It was different responses. What was different? He didn't understand how valuable what it was he had been given. He, all he focused on was what it was going to cost him instead of what he could gain. He had no anticipation <clears throat> of the immense reward he would get for the risks that he would take. Because it, those guys had to risk to get it. He didn't realize, do you notice at the end, it says they took the, he, that the master took the one talent from the guy who wasted it, and he said, give it to the first one who has 10. Now that guy owned what the master gave him. That guy who had nothing at the beginning ended up with 11, and now the master says those were his. In other words, that guy had zero. He now had 11 times half a lifetime's salary. He now had, what is that? 15, 16 million dollars, and he started out with nothing. And the master says, actually, there's more to come. Come, and I'll give you more and enter into my happiness. See, the third servant, not only did he not realize what value he had, <clears throat> not only did he only look at the cost and, not the, uh, and, 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 and the risk, he didn't understand how great the reward would be. He had no concept of the future. All he was thinking about was today. What's this going to cost me today? It's going to inconvenience me today. It's too hard today. He had no conception that the master was going to blow his mind when he got back. And fourthly, more importantly, probably the reason that undergirded all of these reasons and the difference between the first two and the third one is he did not know the master, right? He says to him, I know you're a hard man. Hard man, the guy gave millions of his own dollars to these guys, and when they invested, he said, come, I'll give you more and share in my happiness. Doesn't sound like a hard man. Then he says, harvesting where you have not sown. In other words, taking stuff that doesn't belong to you. It's like, well, this did belong to him. He gave it to you. And in fact, the master says, you wicked, lazy servant. Wicked in the scriptures means someone who lives their life as if there is no God. That's what the word wicked means. Someone who lives life as if God doesn't exist. And that's, in other words, yeah, how could you live like this? And you were lazy. You were too afraid and you were lazy and so you buried it. And so here's what I've been thinking about, myself and for you. The truth is, and for those of you that would say, yes, yeah, I, I'm a follower of Jesus. Like the kingdom of God is something I wanna know, even if I don't totally understand, I want more about. Here's what I, I have come to realize, is that at various times in my life, I act a lot like, the, or I might act like the first two servants and at many other times I'm acting like the third one. I don't think the, the stories of Jesus are so simple to say there's good people and bad people. He was contrasting a kind of thinking and a way of life. And every time Jesus told a story, right? Because we think, that's kind of a hard story. That third servant got kicked out into the darkness, all the weeping and gnashing of teeth. It sounds horrible. But the reality was at the time that Jesus was telling that story, was any of that happening? No, it was a story. But he was telling them, listen up. Pay attention. You may be someone right now who is wasting the gold that God has put in your lap. You may be someone that is living in fear and not in faith. You may be someone that actually doesn't really know who God is, and so you've lived your whole life based on false premises. And you have been given something so amazing, and instead of having it take over your life, you're too afraid, and so you buried it, and nothing has changed. Pay attention, Jesus was saying. And so here's what I did. I began to write down questions and say, okay, how do I know whether I'm someone who's drifted one way or the other? And so here's what I want you to do before you look at those questions. Say right here, right here. <laughs> this is a little diagnostic. 
that I want you to do in your seats, and you don't have to put up your hands or answer the questions, but I want you to do this. And listen, the goal is not to make you feel guilty or whatever. The goal is to understand, where am I leaning? And there may be certain of these questions that you feel like, yeah, I'm kind of like those first two servants. I get it. I'm believing. I'm faithful. I'm investing. And others where you feel like, wow, I'm afraid or just lazy or I've just completely forgotten about that. That's not my life. And so I want you to take a few minutes, and I'm just going to read through each question. In your mind, just go through, and don't be afraid. It's not written down anywhere, so if you want to take out your phones and snap a picture, that's totally fine. The goal is to say, okay, where is the kingdom in my heart? Have I really understood this goal that's here? In a given week, excluding today, Sunday, how much time do I commit to knowing God more? If the kingdom is gold, if knowing God and having his, that knowledge of his ways and his wisdom and his love and his grace how much time do I commit? Reading, prayer, scripture, podcast, spiritual conversation, just trying to get more of it. Is it hours? Is it one hour? Or is it a few minutes? Do I worry about what God will ask me to do, give up, or risk? Some of you maybe look at other people who you fear are like those first two servants and you're like, I don't know if I could live like that. I, I don't know if I could take those risks. I don't know if I could, I don't know if I'd want a life like that. It looks like totally taken over by the kingdom of God. How many of you feel that way? Do I worry? What's it going to cost me? Others of you, is there something that I know God has asked me to do and I'm too afraid to do it? Next one, how often do I pray for others in my life? See, if the, if the kingdom of God is gold, and if the heart of God is a God who emptied himself for others, then to have his heart is to be someone who is other-centered. That's just what happens. When God, the generous, self-giving God, comes into our lives and his kingdom takes over, that's who we become. So how often, how often is that happening in my life? Maybe another question. What do I pray for myself and others? Do I pray for health, wealth, and safety, all of which is good? But do I also pray for forgiveness? Do I pray for freedom? Do I pray for transformation? Do I want more for the people around me than just a healthy, happy, safe life? What do I want for them? True gold. Do I ask God to show me his purposes for my daily work? Like, do I have a sense that now because I've been given this gold, it takes over everything. It changes everything. It changes my work. So now, God, how do you want me to do the job you've given me to do? How often do I think or pray about whether my life is being lived according to his will for me? You know, how often do I ask, God, can you direct my life? Can you tell me what I should be doing with my time? Can you shape this life? How often do I pray about how I should spend my money? If what I have, everything I have, is from him. How much time, money, or energy do I spend caring for the poor? Here or in other parts of the world? When there is an opportunity to talk to someone who doesn't know Jesus about Jesus, do I take it? Do I understand that what I'm holding in my hands is gold? 
If you have children, how often do I talk to my children about Jesus? Talking to them about their education, talking to them what they should be eating, talking about when they should go to sleep, talking about them how they should be treating each other. But how often am I talking to them about their spiritual life? How often am I talking to them about Jesus, about his plans for them, about his love for them? I was so convicted about this when I was listening the other day about, I was listening to a guy who said, you know, his dad said to him from the time he was little, God has a plan for your life. He made you a certain way. You gotta spend your life trying to find it. I thought, man, I gotta pray like that for my kids at the end of the day. How often would I say I experience the joy of knowing God more or the joy of seeing him at work in my life and others' lives? How often do I, can I say that? Now, maybe there's one or two of these that just stick out to you. And let me say this. If you feel like in those, and I went through those this week as I was praying, that in some ways you're more like that third servant. You're fearful or forgetful. You just buried it and life has gone on for you. This isn't about, well, you should feel bad and you should be more like this. You're missing something. Something is missing in our thinking if we're acting like that third servant, right? Something is missing. Either we have gotten too afraid of, of what it's going to mean for us to actually risk, or we have missed seeing how valuable the kingdom of God is in our hands. We have missed understanding perhaps how great the reward is we're going to get for being faithful, or perhaps we've just lost sight of who God really is, right? So this isn't about, oh, I should try harder. No, no, something is missing. What is it? Are you afraid? H- have you missed how valuable the kingdom of God is? Have you missed sight of the fact that, hey, all my reward's not coming in this life. The best is yet to come. Or or maybe have you just lost sight of God and you say, I don't think I know really who he is. If I did, I would live differently. I want you to listen to a story of a woman who I think grasped who God really was. It's from a book uh, by Tom Schmidt called Scandalous Beauty. And he's writing about... um, a woman that he met in a state-run hospital. He said, the state-run convalescent hospital is not a pleasant place. It is large, understaffed, and overfilled with senile and helpless and lonely people who are waiting to die. On the brightest of days, it seems dark inside, and it smells of sickness and stale urine. I went there once or twice a week for four years, but I never wanted to go there, and I always left with a sense of relief. It's not the kind of place one gets used to. On this particular day, I was walking in a hallway that I had not visited before, looking in vain for a few who were alive enough to receive a flower and a few words of encouragement. This hallway seemed to contain some of the worst cases, strapped onto carts or into wheelchairs and looking completely helpless. As I neared the end of this hallway, I saw an old woman strapped up in a wheelchair. Her face was an absolute horror. The empty stare and white pupils of her eyes told me that she was blind. The large hearing aid over one ear told me that she was almost deaf. One side of her face was being eaten by cancer. There was a discolored and running sore covering part of one cheek and it had pushed her nose to one side, dropped one eye, and distorted her jaw so that what should have been the corner of her mouth was the bottom of her mouth. As a consequence, she drooled constantly. I was told later that when new nurses arrived, the supervisors would send them to feed this woman, thinking that if they could stand this sight, they could stand anything in the building. I also learned later that this woman was 89 years old and that she had been here bedridden, blind, nearly deaf and alone for 25 years. This was Mabel. I don't know why I spoke to her, 
She looked less likely to respond than most of the people I saw in that hallway. But I put a flower in her hand and said, here's a flower for you. Happy Mother's Day. She held the flower up to her face and tried to smell it. And then she spoke. And much to my surprise, her words, although somewhat garbled because of her deformity, were obviously produced by a clear mind. She said, thank you. It's lovely. But can I give it to someone else? I can't see it. You know, I'm blind. I said, of course, and I pushed her in the chair back down the hallway to a place where I thought I could find some alert patients. I found one and I stopped the chair. Mabel held out the flower and said, here, this is from Jesus. That was when it began to dawn on me that this was not an ordinary human being. Later, I wheeled her back to her room and learned more about her history. She had grown up on a small farm that she managed with only her mother until her mother died. Then she ran the farm alone until 1950 when her blindness and sickness sent her to the convalescent hospital. For 25 years, she got weaker and sicker with constant headaches, backaches, and stomach aches, and then the cancer came too. Her three roommates were all human vegetables who screamed occasionally but never talked. They often soiled their bedclothes, and because the hospital was understaffed, especially on Sundays when I usually visited, the stench was often overpowering. Mabel and I became friends over the next few weeks, and I went to see her once or twice a week for the next three years. Her first words for me were usually an offer of hard candy from a tissue box near her bed. Some days I would read to her from the Bible, and often when I would pause, she would continue reciting the passage from memory, word for word. On other days, I would take a book of hymns and sing with her, and she would know all the words of the old songs. For Mabel, these were not merely exercises in memory. She would often stop in mid-hymn and make a brief comment about lyrics she considered particularly relevant to her own situation. I never heard her speak of loneliness or pain except in the stress she placed on certain lines in certain hymns. It was not many weeks before I turned from a sense that I was being helped to a sense of wonder, and I would go to her with a pen and paper to write down the things she would say. During one hectic week of final exams, I was frustrated because my mind seemed to be pulled in 10 directions at once with all of the things that I had to think about. The question occurred to me, what does Mabel have to think about? Hour after hour, day after day, week after week, not even able to know if it's day or night. So I went to her and asked her, Mabel, what do you think about when you lie here? And she said, I think about my Jesus. I sat there and I thought for a moment about the difficulty for me of thinking about Jesus for even five minutes and I asked, what do you think about Jesus? She replied slowly and deliberately as I wrote, I think about how good he's been to me. He's been awfully good to me in my life, you know. I'm one of those kind who's mostly satisfied. Lots of folks wouldn't care much for what I think. Lots of folks would think I'm kind of old-fashioned, but I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus. He's all the world to me. And then she burst into the hymn, Jesus is all the world to me. This is not fiction. Incredible as it may seem, a human being really lived like this. I know, I knew her. How could she do it? Seconds ticked and minutes crawled and so did days and weeks and months and years of pain without human company and without an explanation of why it was all happening and she lay there and sang hymns. How could she do it? The answer, I think, is that Mabel had something that you and I don't have much of. She had power. Lying there in that bed, unable to move, unable to see, unable to hear, unable to talk to anyone, she had incredible power. Here was an ordinary human being who received supernatural power to do extraordinary things, her entire life consisted of following Jesus as best as she could in her situation. Patient endurance of suffering, solitude, prayer, meditation on scripture, worship, fellowship when it was possible, giving when she had a flower or a piece of candy to offer. 
Imagine being in her condition and saying, I think about how good he's been to me. He's been awfully good to me in my life, you know. I'm one of those kinds who's mostly satisfied. This is the 23rd Psalm come to life. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then John Ortberg says this at the end of that passage. Do you believe such a life is possible for an ordinary human being? Do you believe it is possible for you? This is promised in the gospel, the good news proclaimed by Jesus. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. The good news as Jesus preached it is that now it is possible for ordinary men and women to live in the presence and under the power of God. The good news as Jesus preached it is not about the minimal entrance requirements for getting into heaven when you die. It is about the glorious redemption of human life, your life. Is it possible, friends, that you and I, and I know it's possible, it's, it's actually likely for me, that we have been distracted by shiny things to the point that we have missed the gold that has been placed in our hands by a master who loves us and wants more for us than we could ever want for ourselves. And all we need to do is begin to realize that what we have been given is gold. How do you and I grasp that? How do we become people who treasure the kingdom of God in Jesus like that? And so here's my encouragement to you. is to do something different. You know what the saying is? If you do what you've always done and expect different results, that's the definition of insanity. So do something different to realize and risk. And whatever it is, maybe there's just one thing on here that you're going to do. For some of you, you just need to be here more often. God told us to gather, to be together, one in seven. Why? Because we forget. And there's many other things you could be doing on this day, but you're here. Why? So we can remember together that we have gold in our hands. Because I don't know about you, but so many other things that happen in my life don't actually remind me of that. They cause me to look at other shiny, distracting things that are not as valuable as what we have. And so God said every day, every week, one in seven, stop, rest, and reflect on the kingdom of God. Maybe you need to start a daily prayer. I know this seems so cliche or trite or simple, but this has actually really been changing me in certain areas where certain things I've said, okay, I'm going to pray for this person or this situation every day. And I don't do it every day. Sometimes I forget, but then I, forget, I remember that I've forgotten, and so I start again. Maybe you need to change the content of a daily prayer. Maybe you pray every time at mealtime, or you pray every time at bed, or you pray every time in the morning, you pray, but most of your prayers are like health, wealth, safety. And you need to change the content of that daily prayer. To pray more for the kingdom of God to come to your life, to come to the lives of the people around you and your family, your friends, and your neighborhood. Maybe you need to commit or recommit to reading the gospels, the biographies of Jesus, the kingdom of God at hand. Maybe you need to put down a magazine or an iPad or whatever and read a book. And you can ask for a recommendation. I know this is something that I realized we need to do a few weeks ago. So I said to Jen, hey, can we, because we like to watch shows in the evenings and sometimes, you know, sometimes it's once a week, but sometimes it's two or three times a week. And I thought, I'm just wasting so much of my time in the evenings. I need to read more. And so we kind of said, okay, let's for a month, let's just fast media. At night, let's read. And sometimes I read and sometimes we talk, but it ends up in great conversation. We just feel like we've carved back into our life, hours of time that I just said I didn't have. So maybe that's a good thing for some of you. We dragged our kids along with us. 
Maybe you need to join or rejoin a home group for this fall, a place where you come together every week to be reminded of the kingdom of God that you have in your hands. Some of you maybe just need to do something different with your money. Sponsor Compassion Child. Compassion is one of the most amazing organizations out there because what happens is your kid will start to write you letters. And it's really incredible. You know, my wife's kind of the letter manager in our house. So always, come on, guys, we got to write, we got to write. And then she's telling me the stories that are coming back. These are kids who are partnering with churches and places that maybe we'll never get to go. But as you give, you're giving to them to their spiritual, psychological, emotional, and physical development. And they're telling you that. And you know what they ask the sponsor kids every year? What's the most meaningful part of this whole thing? And they get money and they get it better. They all say the letter. The letter. That someone out there cares about me and is writing me and asking me, well, how is your dad? Or how is that thing? Or are you still playing soccer? Or how's your school going? It will begin to change some of your life. It's like gold invested and all of a sudden your life is different. You're running in a different rhythm than before. Perhaps you want to redirect some money that you'd planned for a purchase, big or small, for some kind of amusement or maybe a home improvement or vacation or something. You just say, what if we took that and did this instead to try to shift some of this gold into the kingdom? Whatever it is and maybe there's some other idea you have. Here's what I know is that if you and I went to our mailboxes on Monday morning and you got a letter and in that letter was a check for a million and a half dollars, it would change your life. Whatever your half of your lifetime's earnings are, you would start to do things differently. And then you read the letter and it said, this is real and this is just the beginning. There's more to come. Friends, that is the letter we have received. We all think, man, that would be so great. It is great. It is the letter we have received. This is gold, and there's so much more to come. And we just need that song we sang this morning, God, open up our eyes to see this for what it is, to see you for who you are. So let me pray for you, then we're going to respond and worship. God, we ask that you would just open up our eyes to see you for who you really are so that we would truly know you, because when we know you, we won't be afraid anymore. When we know you, we won't forget that there's a now, but there's a, there's a day to come too. If we know you, we won't forget there's actually an amazing reward coming for faithfulness. If we know you, we won't miss the fact that what is in our hands is pure gold. And so help us, God, in whatever we do and whatever step we take, even if it's a step we've tried a thousand times and it never sticks or we never are able to do it, give us your power to do it. Open up our eyes through the step of obedience we take to see you. We thank you for the opportunity that we live in a country where in public we can be here one every seven to be reminded of the goal that you have given us in Jesus. Amen. Just going to give you my benediction. Just want to bless you with a new perspective, a new sight, a new vision of who God really is. And that the step that you take would not just be something small, would actually open your eyes to see him as he really is. And I bless you with faith to take whatever step God has put in your heart to take today, knowing that there's something better out there. In the name of Jesus, amen.